And the orientation of a creator is not how do I react or respond to what's coming at me, but what do I want? Where am I now? And how do I move from where I am to where I want to be? And another distinction I make along these lines is the difference between problem solving and creating. Uh, most people, because they can only respond, respond or react to circumstances, uh, think that their lives are problems to solve. You know, if I solve all my problems, everything will be okay. And what we actually know is you can solve all of your problems and still not create what you want. Creating, you're taking action to have something come into being. Problem solving, you're taking action to have something go away, the problem. And they're not the same thing. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I am giving away 25 free spots into my Momentum Makers community, which is about to go live. Momentum Makers is just a community for growth mindset learners, someone like yourself who loves engaging with new, interesting ideas, thought leaders like the people on this show. That's why you'll get access to masterclass calls where we actually go behind the scenes with someone from the show and pick their brain a little bit further. You also get access to community calls and all of the exclusive content like my book recaps, the distillery and everything else that I find and is improving my life. So if you're interested in getting one of those limited free spots, click the link below, and I'll welcome you to the Momentum Makers community. Hope to see you there. Robert, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, I've just been looking forward to this conversation for a number of years. Your work's really impacted me, and I think it would be helpful just to understand the impact music has had on you and everything you've done moving forward. Hmm. Well, I would say that everything I do in some way or other comes from music. And it's, what is it about music um, that particularly had impact on other things had to do with the way music is structured. So it's the underlying structure of anything will determine its behavior, which is an insight that I came to. And that's always true in music, that the underlying structure in music leads to movement, uh, leads to rhythm, leads to harmony and melody, of course. Um, and I would say that what's really important to understand is that in our lives, we actually move along the path of least resistance, which is the title of three of my books. And... By that, I do not mean the easy way out, which is the colloquial meaning of that term, but the scientific meaning, which is energy always moves along the path that it can move in. It always moves where it's easiest for it to go. So, for example, it's the riverbed that directs the water 
to go where it goes. And I think the three insights that became really important is that, number one, the underlying structure of anything will determine its behavior. Number two, we can change the underlying. Uh, number two, it, it's, uh, it's the, no, actually, let me start again. It's uh, that energy moves along the path of least, least resistance, and it's the underlying structure that causes that movement. And number three, that we can change the underlying structures that we're in. And this last principle that we're in structures that we can change. And if we change those structures, it actually changes the patterns in our lives and in our organizations and in everything else that we do. That became uh, the most central governing principle in the work that I've created. Do you have any idea why you were able to uncover these, or let's just say even see clearer than most people and, and make the, the non-obvious to most obvious to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, six years at a conservatory. <laughs> We're really learning about this stuff and in the realm of music. And we have courses called Form and Analysis, where you take a piece of music and you understand exactly what's going on and why the composer did this at this point and that at that point and how things integrate and combine and so on. And, and it's a little bit, I mean, I suppose it could have also been an architect who discovered this or a mathematician who discovered this. I mean, the principles are very similar. But, um, but it happened to be me. <laughs> so, well, and, and, then I and I'm, you know, the thing is, I, the thing is, I'm still a composer. And I'm, I'm a filmmaker, as you probably know, and I'm still in the arts. And so those things have never left me. They've, I've always been a working artist in that sense. Uh, but it's just that these principles, which are so inherent in the creative process, can be used in all kinds of realms in people's lives and for the benefit. Yeah, I, I want to dive into that in a minute around the, the creativity in our own lives and our, our lives are a creative act. But, but I'm really intrigued about you as a, a creative. I mean, filmmaker, involved in music, author, like you've been able to conquer a lot. And I'm just wondering for you, you mentioned the underlying principles seem to be the same. Which creative act was the hardest for you to master? Screenwriting. Why is that? <laughs> well, um, it's one of the most structurally, technically intricate and rigorous processes there is to, to really write a screenplay in which all the characters, you know, have counterpoints and then come together at the end. Um, for me, that was the most uh, difficult because you're dealing with elements that every motivation, every move um, has impact. And so if you move here, it's got three or four different impacts later in the screenplay. So that one was, um, I think, the most, um, the trickiest and the most difficult for me to learn. Uh, but I really kind of know how to do it now. And, um, but I didn't, it wasn't a talent I had. Um, it was something I had to learn. What does that look like when you're mapping out a screenplay? I'm just wondering how you navigate that amount of complexity and make it simple for yourself. Well, um, to really understand that, I'm going to make it really simple, even though it's not as simple as I'm going to make it. Okay. So <laughs> don't be fooled by what yeah, I yeah. say. <laughs> Okay. Um, 
you in the, the first thing in a screenplay is you have a protagonist and you have an opposition. And that creates a dramatic tension. So let's say, you know, she wants to save the forest and he wants to put an oil uh, drill right in the middle of the forest and cut down all the trees. I mean, this is really quite, you know, um, a, a um, silly plot, but let's say it's that absurd. And then so you've got the, the good one and the bad one. And um, in the typical world of screenplays, there's three acts. And in the first act, there'll be a reversal. And second, at the end, there'll be a reversal. And third, there'll be a reversal. And a reversal is where the protagonist can no longer go after what he or she wants. So um, each act creates a its own tension resolution system. Create a tension, resolve it into the next act. Create another tension, resolve it into the next act. Create a tension, resolve it into the next act. And um, at the end, of course, it, it resolves one of two ways, either in favor of the protagonist or against the protagonist. The protagonist gets what he or she wants or doesn't. Um, and, uh, you, think, you know, think about someone that Steven Spielberg is such a master at creating these tension resolution systems. And uh, one of his typical kinds of endings is a false ending, like an E.T. It looks like E.T. is really dead. And you go, oh. but he isn't. He comes alive. And then it resolves, <laughs> you know, and we're all happy. So, um, you know, that form, now that form is based on tension resolution systems. Whenever I have a tension, we'll strive for resolution. And this is both a musical principle and a principle in physics. And why that then becomes important is because in structuring your life, you can create strategic tension resolution systems where you're aiming your creative process toward an outcome. And that tension you create is formed by the contrast between what you want and what you have, the desired state, the actual state. That difference creates a tension, and you can take action to resolve that tension in favor of what you want. It's like an archer stretching the bow, aiming the arrow at the target. With adequate tension, you can get the arrow to the target. And so the, uh, the principles in screenplays, in music, in playwriting itself, in visual forms, uh, in ballet, in modern dance, in rock and roll, um, in jazz, um, all deal with setting up strategic tensions, which then resolve where you would like them to resolve. So you have a, a beautiful illustration with two hands holding a rubber band with the, the tension going between the rubber band. And I think when most people hear tension, they're thinking a negative concept, but, but you don't view well, it that way. Yeah. No, no, it's, uh, I'm using the term um, in a structural sense. And I'm not describing anxiety, pressure, um, psychological tension. I, it's the same kind of tension you have in your arm when you, your muscles are, are ten, both tense and relaxed and you have a combination of, tension resolution system in your whole body that allows you to stand and sit and walk around and move your thumbs and everything. So no, we're not, we're not talking about um, psychological tension. 
I'm intrigued what you were mentioning a minute ago, where you've got the desired state, you've got the actual state, and then you need to take action towards that. I'm thinking about how this plays out in our own lives and where most people go wrong uh, in the thinking that that you clearly have uncovered here. Hmm. Well, they don't know how to create. <clears throat> in other words, if you don't know how to create, what are you left with? you're left with reacting or responding to the prevailing circumstances of your life rather than <clears throat> actually thinking about what you might truly want. That's helpful. I'm wondering if you could help us then learn the proper way to create so we can think about that for our own lives. Well, I would suggest that you start simply with small things. You know, think about an outcome you would like to create in the next week or two weeks. Um, then. Uh, very clearly and truthfully describe where you are right now in relationship to that outcome. Describe the action steps that you need to take to move from where you are to where you want to be. Um, then take those action steps and then create the outcome. Now, if you do that a lot, you begin to create a muscle, you know, like a creative muscle. <clears throat> so it's, there's no tricks to this. Just the same way there's no tricks to learning how to play the cello. There's technique. They aren't tricks. You can't trick yourself into being able to play the cello. <laughs> Actually, you sit there and, you know, practice. <laughs> and this is the same kind of thing, learning how to swim, learning how to drive a car. Learning any skill is you do it and do it and do it and do it. And you make a lot of mistakes in the beginning, and then you learn from those mistakes, and you uh, have successes, and you learn from the successes. And then you're building the, um, first of all, the skill of creating. But then later, you're beginning to think like a creator. So then you're beginning to adopt the orientation of a creator. And the orientation of a creator is not how do I react or respond to what's coming at me, but what do I want? Where am I now? And how do I move from where I am to where I want to be? And another distinction I make along these lines is the difference between problem solving and creating. Uh, most people, because they can only respond, respond or react to circumstances, uh, think that their lives are problems to solve. You know, if I solve all my problems, everything will be okay. And what we actually know is you can solve all of your problems and still not create what you want. Creating, you're taking action to have something come into being. Problem solving, you're taking action to have something go away, the problem. And they're not the same thing. When you come into work with a business, is that one of the first things you think about? how they're reactionary versus creating? Well, one of the first things I think about is why are they in business? What are we here to do? Meaning vision? No, meaning uh, purpose. I mean, what, what are you up to? What, okay. What's this all about? Like, for example, I've worked with Nike. And Nike's a great company. And they're really about sports. And almost every manager I work, 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 worked with at Nike uh, was an athlete. And they really cared about sports. They see sports as a civilizing force. So when they, for example, engineer shoes 
various sports shoes and so on. You're very serious about making sure that they're safe, that they uh, promote uh, high performance, but good health. Um, and that's an example of a company, and there are many of them, a company that is about something. You know, they care about something. There's something they're about. So then the question is, um, what's the offer? Who are the customers? What do they want? What do we want? And what is the match between what we want and what they want? And if there's a strong match, we have a basis of doing business. And in a way, that's the uh, nature of strategic planning in its essence, is to make sure that our offer, we care about our offer, and that we're um, having a match between what the market wants and what we're creating. I just gave you an MBA in 25 words or less. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so this is actually what I was going to follow up with is you, you seem to be able to whittle down complexity so well. I, I have That's to because things are not as complex as people make them. The, 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 what, what, the, what, what has allowed you to see so clearly? Right. I'm, I'm just like envious uh, because yes. I, I'll, I'll read your work. I'll listen to you. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> like, well, why wasn't I able to get to that point a little sooner? Well, let me put it to you this way. It, most things are not that complex, but there are things that are complex. A Bach fugue is really complex. That's complex. An organization isn't. <laughs> now, usually organizations are so poorly organized that it seems complex because you can't anything, get anything done through all of the, in a way, the misconnection, that, the fragmentation that exists. But if we, in a way, compose an organization the same way we compose a piece of music, we have major themes, we have sub-themes, we have accompaniment, you know, we have everything's designed to fit together. And from that point of view, it then becomes uh, a, high, a high operating system where people are reinforcing each other's work, not competing against each other. I got, I, I got it. It makes sense there. Um, we don't, we don't need to yeah. complicate it any more than that. What, one of the lines you have, and you know, another way of answering, I, I think though, I think though, another way of really answering your question for me is I rethink everything. I don't just take it for granted what people say about things. Um, Can you expand on that? How that? How that? So when I. Yeah, everybody told me when I first started working in organizations that they're so complex and you could never get anywhere with them. And I began to study what was really going on and found that the reason they were complex is that people were sort of set up to do um, and rewarded to do things that were contradictory. You know, reward this person for one job, it's going to really exacerbate uh, conflict on this other part of the organization. And if they succeed, it's going to contradict this one. And these kinds of internal uh, conflicts um, were almost like a bad musical composition where things didn't fit together. You know, they're always fighting each other. So when I saw that, um, I saw that there was no reason why you couldn't really align all of the various parts in an organization 
through what could be called the compositional process. You know, how the parts are designed and how they fit together and reinforce each other rather than compete against each other. Okay, so a lot of organizations, when you really look at them, they have uh, conflicts that are built in. So you reward this person for accomplishing a job, but if that person does accomplish a job, it exacerbates conflict on another part of the organization. And <clears throat> these uh, kinds of conflicts exist all over the place as a kind of a fragmented um, structure in the organization. So I think of that as a bad composition, like a bad piece of music. And if you start to really compose the organization, you have major themes, you have secondary themes, you have accompaniment, um, you have development, and the parts are designed then to fit together. And so in that sense, instead of um, competition within the organization, the various parts are aligned and support each other that then create a uh, forward movement. And that is totally a structural element and a design element that uh, most organizations don't happen to know about. When did you first start to see this structural and design element and the impact it has on individuals' lives, right? Like becoming the, the artist of your own life, essentially. Those are two different things. Um, organizations and the artists in your own life are not the same thing. <laughs> the underlying, but having competing structures are, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm interested in the underlying structures. Okay. It's when I was on the phone with a friend who I hadn't talked to in about six months. <clears throat> and he, um, he, when the last time I saw him, he had just gotten into a new relationship. And so I said, well, how's it going with the relationship? Well, it was over. I said, well, what happened? Now, I happened to have a pencil in my hand and a piece of paper. And as he told me the story, I was jotting it down. And when I looked at the elements of the story, it looked like a good structure, not a good story, but a very good structure. You know, one thing led to another, led to another. And what I then did was I abstracted the story to describe it more generically. And then I asked him to tell me another time he set out for something, had it for a period of time, at the end no longer had it, and it was not a good ending. And I said, but don't tell me the story. And then I went through the description on the generic um, description. Did you do this? Yep. 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 So he did every one of those steps. So I tested that against three or four other stories. And then I did this uh, pattern. It's called macrostructural patterning. Um, I did this for everybody I knew. I was just testing this thing out. And sure enough, uh, it turns out that people had two types of patterns. One was oscillating, where they'd set out for something, have it for a period of time, and then there was a reversal where they no longer had it. And the other was advancing. So they would set out for something, accomplish it. And that accomplishment then became a platform for future creations. And of course, my question was, what causes the difference between these two types of patterns? And after years of working with and studying the phenomena, um, what I've come to is that it's the the concepts that people have 
that really get in their way. Their belief systems, any other concepts, their theories, their speculation, their philosophies of life, philosophy general, uh, generally. Um, there's a book called Color, How to See It and Paint It by Arthur Stern. What Arthur Stern did in the book was he took a group of his students to the shores of the Hudson River. And he pointed across the river and he said, well, what car colors do you see? And the student said, well, the, the brick building is red and the tower is orange and the other building is white. And then he passed out what he called uh, spot screens, which is like a card with a hole in it. And he said, now hold this card up to the background. And suddenly the students all got very quiet until somebody eventually said blue. Everything over there is blue. Now, the reason it was blue is because on hazy days, we don't see the color of the objects. We see the atmosphere between us and the objects. But Stern goes on to explain that why were they seeing red and orange and white and so on? And he said that student artists don't see what's there. They see the concept of what's there. And in order to teach students how to see what's there and paint it properly, they have to rid themselves of their concepts. And this is a very similar thing that I found too, for people to really be able to master their own creative process. They really have to rid themselves of whatever their belief systems are. This is not like good beliefs and bad beliefs and positive beliefs and negative beliefs. It's all beliefs. So when we're talking about creating, what have we got? We've got end result and we have current reality. There's no point, there's no, there's no position in reality where the belief would be, be other than getting in the way. So if I get rid of all my concepts, what am I left with? I'm left with, here's my desired outcome, here's where I am right now. And it doesn't mean you don't have beliefs on the side, you know, leave them at the door, but they're not part of the creative process itself. And the proof of this is that the creative process is philosophically neutral. The the proof of that is that masters of the creative process believed all kinds of stuff. It wasn't their belief system that made them masters. It was mastery of the creative process, independent of what they happened to believe. Now, Sometimes I describe things as the belief business and the creating business. And in the belief business, it matters what you believe because the major activity around the belief business is conversion. You know, the the idea is there's something to believe and you should fall in line by the party line and act accordingly. And in the creating business, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters how well you create. And your beliefs are a personal matter. So I think this is also, I mean, maybe the more revolutionary kind of stuff that I've done is to try to show that the actual creative process is not in the belief business realm. It's in the creating business realm. Did you see um, uh, uh, Lady Gaga's uh, Monster Ball? Yeah. Did you see when she... 
is in her dressing room and she said, you know, even though we're here in the, in the uh, Madison Square Garden, you know, I still feel like a kid from high school, you know, and she's going on about how, you know, because what she's doing is she's really, as an artist, she's totally honest with herself, which you have to be. Yeah. I mean, in almost any other profession, you can lie like crazy and get away with it. But in the arts, you can't. And um, what she did right after that scene is she went out and blew everybody's mind because it doesn't matter what you think about yourself in the creative process. I, I have such respect for Lady Gaga. I'm wondering for you as an ultimate artist, when you, when you see her perform, no matter what classification of art she's doing at the time, yeah. what are you drawn to? Um, many things. Um, her music. Um, well, it's really interesting because I actually saw Lady Gaga live uh, one time in Sweden, and I really loved her as a live performer, but I also love her separately as a film performer. You know, she's different on film than, than she is live. Uh, but she's there was one point where after all the great music and the band and the dancers and everything, she's just there alone with the piano. And you can really see her musicianship and her beautiful, amazing chops when she's playing the piano singing. It was like, oh, yeah, wow. And I loved all the other stuff, but there was that moment of truth, you know, her, her almost like her artistic truth was right there. No I, place to hide. Right. I love that scene where she's playing her song, Joan, for her grandma, which is about the mm -hmm. daughter her grandma lost. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. I'll, I'll pull the clip and send it to you. It is, wow, it's, it's a riveting. Yeah, great, great. Yeah. No, I'm a big Lady Gaga fan. Well, I, I'm, well I, then I'm intrigued. I mean, you, you based on your writing, uh, you, you love so many different types of art. And yeah. uh, is, is there something you feel internally that is different across different art forms? Or is there a similar feeling that you know when, when you're coming in contact with a beautiful creation? No, I, I see each one as its own universe. Oh, go further. I don't there. have any universal thematic um, uh, unifying principle. It, it, it's I take it for what it is, and so um, there are many things that move me and and uh, and that I love. So, and in in my own life, I I write many types of music. From um, well, I'm right now we're uh, we're doing a Christmas show. Uh, that's about the smallest elf in the North Pole and the top who loves to spin. And the music I wrote for that, there's songs that we wrote. Uh, Dennis Smith, uh, who's the head of Party in the Moon, and I wrote 25 songs for the show. And I also wrote a background score, which is sort of like a Peter and the Wolf kind of score. And then I also wrote the script. And then I also write a very advanced classical music you know that's very dissonant and hard to listen to for a lot of people you know and i also write a lot of film music and so on so for my in in my own life um there's many things that i as an artist go to this and then to this and each one is its own universe its own special unique place and that's how i both appreciate other artists and my own creative process as well can, can you expand a bit on your own creative process? I'm just wondering because you're someone who creates freely and I'm wondering how you think about 
structure and constraints within your okay. own creative process? Well, I'll give you one example. Um, so I was in Japan a couple of years ago. And while I was there, I just wanted to make a film in Japan, a short film in, in Japanese with Japanese actors. Do you speak Japanese, I just, Japanese at all? No, no. And um, But I just had this kind of feeling. I'm just about the place, and I just wanted to do a film. And as it turns out, one of the people in one of my workshops runs a theater in Tokyo. So we got together and uh, picked out some actors. And often when I'm doing a script, the first thing I'll start with is I pick out actors. So I don't even know what the story is yet. What's 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 the the reasoning there? Obviously, you've been successful. With well, the reasoning too. there is really practical. If I have to go audition actors for a part I've already written, I mean, it would really depend on the other cast members as well. But let me let me get back to my Japanese story because this is typical of how I do a film. Is uh, so then I I um, had the actors, and then I began to think about uh, the film I wanted to to make. And what I decided to do was to write a story about a master poet who had lost her muse and that she meets a young poet who really has this spark that she had when she was young, but is now lost. And she, what, what she wants to do is teach the young poet what she knows so she can at least pass on um, you know, what she knows to this wonderful, talented, but not yet technically good poet. And she tries to do that, but she finds she just can't even teach her. So then she goes to a Zen monastery. And um, there's a, a scene with a Zen master and how she reconnects with her, her muse, as it were. And then from that, she's able to go back to Tokyo and write poetry again and teach the young poet. And sort of that's the essence of the story. So I'm wondering then exactly how did that even come to being, like the, the creative process behind that? What, what's going on behind the scenes there for you? Not a whole lot. I mean, I'm just, I got this actress I know what she looks like. And then, well, she'd make a really good poet. And I love Japanese poetry too. So it gave me a chance to play around with analyzing Japanese poetry in the, in the uh, script. Because one of the things that the uh, master poet tells a young poet to do is to go copy all of the Japanese master haiku poets and write it in brush to duplicate their thought process as they were writing haiku. So it gave me a chance to really um, put all those haiku poems in my script and then analyze them, say why they're great. You know, so it was, it was that kind of thing. It was just a fun, yeah. fun subject matter. And it was something that I could shoot too, because the practical matter of it is um, how many days do I have? And do I, you know, am I able to shoot this thing within that t period of time and so on and so on? There's a lot of practical things that one thinks about as well. And I don't, I don't have problems with uh, translations because um, I wrote the script in English. They translated it into Japanese. Um, I know exactly what's going on. It'll have English subtitles. 
And I already did a film like that in Sweden where I don't speak Swedish, but we did a Swedish film in exactly the same kind of way. You mentioned the, the entire story. There's the master poet. Did, did you have a master poet in your life? Someone who, who passed on some stuff or were you kind of out there on your own? No, no. I studied with some great teachers. I, I studied my composition teacher at the conservatory. was a great, great teacher. Um, I studied with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen at one point, who's a major composer um, of the 20th century. I studied, I, I played when I was in the music business. I played with Darius and Dave Brubeck, so always around those folks. Um, what what are I've you been doing around when you're surrounded by greatness to help you ooze in some of that? I don't understand quite your question. Well, I mean, just just being surrounded by them. Uh, I'm assuming there's certain things you're picking up on or tendencies. I'm just wondering if you can kind of hmm. rewind back what you were doing when you were surrounded by some of those people. I was being myself. <laughs> well, I, 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 I would hope, listen, I would hope no, you were. I, mean, I, I just wondered how you absorbed some of the... <laughs> but I was absorbing what they were saying, but I was actually being myself. In other words, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't weird or anything. I'm just kind of, you know... I, I, would, I would hope not. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just curious around the absorption phase, even like no, you, you if, mentioned in your... Op, put it in, to you. Let me put it to you this way. What what happens when you play with good tennis players? They raise the level of your play. Exactly. Yeah, that's how it is. Hmm. You, you've got this line, Robert. Uh, I I love. I was going through a bunch of my notes I've had over the years on some of your work, and it, it's not what the vision is; it's what the vision does. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you, like, what's the vision you currently have? Well, um, right now. I'm working on the show, the Christmas show. I'm working on the film, which we're, I'm going to do in October in Japan. Um, I'm writing, uh, right now I'm in the middle of writing a piece for string quartet and flute. Um, I'm finishing up uh, a book on sales for Japan uh, that's going to be, that's going to come out while I'm there. Uh, and um um, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Robert, I feel like in, in some of the work I was reading that uh, you wrote 20 years ago, you were mentioned maybe one big creative project a year. Yeah. That is, was is this evolution due to <laughs> <laughs> more action leads to more action, the momentum you're able to build? I bet it, it probably does. And it also probably comes from, I'm really old and I want to do a lot of things. <laughs> you're, you're in your seventies, correct? I'm 79. I'll be 80 next year. So this is this is remarkable. Uh, I hope people who are listening. Uh, I don't know if turn it's to remarkable. our page on YouTube. No, think well, about Clint. Look, think about Clint Eastwood. You know, I mean, wow. <laughs> well, I think what what Clint's been able to do his his evolution, his ability to learn in his craft is remarkable to me. Right, it's uh, great. It's 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 really beautiful to see. Speaking of beautiful, I, I just feel like you seem you look so young. Um, well, I color my hair. <laughs> no, like even your even even the exuberance you have. I, I don't think anyone listening yeah. to this who was unfamiliar with your work would have said Robert is seventy nine. Yeah, is this probably. due to the, the creative, the act of creation in your life? Could be. I also, by the way, um, go to the gym twice a week and do an exercise class twice a week. So I'm exercising for four hours. Um, I'm a vegan, as have been a vegan for about four years, and I manage my health. I mean, I try to take care of myself. 
One thing I'm curious, because uh, I've seen it come up again and again in your work, it's something I'm really fascinated and interested in, is the subconscious mind. And I'm just wondering how you think about the subconscious mind and the potential power within it. Yeah, I think, though, that it's been misunderstood by people who are into the pos positive thinking movement, actually. Um, the subconscious, as a creator, is like an amplifier. So if I set up a theme uh, and I turn that over to my subconscious, that theme will show up in other places in the piece that I didn't actually plan on, but it automatically happened. Um, a lot of, speaking of Spielberg, he sets up, he plants things in his films that are appreciated subconsciously that are not understood consciously. For example, <clears throat> in the color purple, there's a scene where Suge, who's a nightclub singer, comes into the church to see her father, who's a preacher. He has rejected her. And she, she um, comes into the church. He's sweeping. He's singing, God's trying to tell you something. When he sees it's her, he turns her back. He turns his back on her and sits down. She tries to talk to him. He will not talk to her. And then he leaves. And when she leaves the church, she backs out. And there's uh, two doors there. And she closes the doors like this. Over an hour later, um, there's Suge at an, at an outdoor nightclub in the church, and they can hear each other, bothering each other. And so in the church, they say, tell the choir to sing, God's trying to tell you something. And so they start singing this thing, and it starts to bother the sound in the nightclub. And so Suge starts to walk toward the church. He's marching now toward the church, confronting the church, confronting her father. And she begins to sing, God's trying to tell you something. And she's just singing. She's un unbelievable in her singing of it. And so the lead singer in the church stops singing and starts to join the choir in support of her singing, God's trying to tell you something. And then she bursts into the church with complete retrograde of what you saw an hour before, the way she closed the doors. She opens the doors exactly like that and goes in and there's a scene where she runs up to her father and she said, see daddy, sinners have souls too. And he slowly hugs her and that's the, rec the, the res resolution of that story. But you see how Spielberg planted seeds that the, the, the audience wasn't gonna know really, but they tracked subconsciously. So that's, that's the, uh, the power of the subconscious. But what people who do positive thinking don't understand <clears throat> is that the underlying structure is much more powerful than positive thinking. And if you're in a underlying structure that has a tendency to accomplish what you want, you can have negative thoughts, you can have all kinds of thoughts, it doesn't matter. And the fact that that structure is in place will be stronger, will be more uh, important as an influence than anything you happen to think. Because the underlying structure of anything will determine its behavior. Similar to the, the difference between an amateur and a professional, the professionals have, have set up the correct structure where the amateurs are seeking motivation. 
I, I wouldn't describe it that way. I'd say that professionals, no matter what the circumstances, can make it work, whereas amateurs can only do it when they feel like it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, a real professional, no matter how they feel, they're going to go in and, and make it work. Was there a point in your life where you felt you stepped over that, that bridge there and were a true professional? Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you remember the moment? Or the, the time period? It wasn't a moment. It, no, it wasn't a moment. It was a series of gigs that I was playing and, you know, um, <clears throat> what you had to do to make sure it worked and, and so on. And, and being around people who are also professionals give you that um, sort of like the code of the West. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wondering if then I, I know you've hit on a few of these major principles that you've you've brought into life. Are there any other incredibly important lessons that you've uncovered under over the years that we just haven't discussed? Yeah, be true to yourself. Be honest. Never try to kid yourself. You don't necessarily have to be honest with everybody else in your life, but you definitely have to be honest with yourself. You know, just be absolutely unflinching and making sure not only telling yourself the truth but making a point of knowing the truth so you're not just giving yourself an opinion or excuses but you really know what's what i think that's really important and um the other is um it doesn't matter what you think about yourself doesn't matter whether you accomplish anything or not. You know, when, uh, when someone dies, what often people think about are the little moments that they had with that person. They don't think about all the big things. They think about, you know, when they had coffee one day or when there was a joke that was told or something like that. And a lot of times we're so busy running around trying to do things like improve ourselves or accomplish great things that you miss the real poetry of life. Mm. And it is in these moments that we really have the kind of um, interaction and involvement that's so meaningful. That's beautiful. You've talked so much about the things you learned. One of the things you were talking about earlier is so many of us are influenced by those beliefs we have. What for you was really hard to unlearn? Well, I still can't spell. <laughs> um, I don't know that I really had. I do. I do think, by the way, unlearning is is really some sometimes tougher than learning. Um, but I think my general orientation and motivation is to learn, and I have that kind of objectivity, like a scientist would have. Of, you know, if something's not true, okay, that's it. I don't have to go and generally work my way out of it. It's like, okay, that's it. Hmm. So when I come to a in new insight, I, and it's different than what I thought before, I immediately change the channel. I don't, it, I don't know whether it's a character trait or just my personality or I don't know if it's something I've learned. It's just kind of how it's always been for me. 
That's great. Yeah. So many people are somebody so strong, strong and stuck in their own convictions, uh, unwilling to, to switch there, even based on correct and, and new information, seeing reality clearly. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of times it's because they have identity tied up with their belief systems and to change their ideas, they have to have an existential crisis. And if you're, if you're, Ideas are not tied up to your identity. You're much freer to just judge them based on their own merits and see if they hold up to scrutiny. You just saying the words there, feeling freer. I'm wondering because I hear from different creatives, they feel that that internal tension in the negative sense, the way you describe that it shouldn't be um, when looking at desired outcome, current reality. Do you feel as a creative any of that internal tension as you're working on the art form you're currently working on? Never. I mean, maybe there's something wrong with me. No, no, yeah. I'm, I'm just, hey, this, this, this <laughs> is your story. That. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, goodness. Uh, no, I just feel lucky to be creating, actually. And I mean, sometimes. Where'd you go there? It's you, not, I, where I went, I'm going to tell you. Sometimes I don't have the ability uh, to create the vision. You know, my vision outpaces my chops. And so in that case, that becomes then a learning situation. You know, if, if I want to do this thing, what do I need to do? Like for me, I said, I mentioned screenplaying, screenwriting. And, and that was really probably the toughest thing I needed to learn because I did want to make films and I wanted to write them. And I made a lot of lousy films at first because I didn't know how to do it. But it was the screenwriting that I had to, where my vision was much higher than my ability. And one thing I often say about my writing is um, I have a lot of technique because I don't have a lot of talent. <laughs> See, I have a lot of talent for music. I could write music all day long and not even think about it. You know, I just can do that. Well, I mean, I also learned how to do it, but still, I mean, I could, it's like a natural language for me, but writing wasn't. And um, so I really did a lot of work to try to become a better writer. I studied writing. I liked, I analyzed it. Where, why is that there? How, did, how am I getting so much out of this one sentence? How did, how did she do that? I'm particularly thinking of Ellen Goodman, who's a columnist, columnist for the Boston Globe, whose writing was just, she'd say something and it would be the whole world in a, sentence and i how does she do that and i spent hours really analyzing her writing and and other authors i like too and then i wrote a lot and finally got a, a sense of how to do it but it took me a long time it was not a natural ability i i was sort of like dorothy parker said i love having written <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're describing some of the things you did in the early days. These things I'm fascinated because I feel like not enough people talk about them, like those infantile steps towards your greatness. Yeah. Any, any other like really just, I don't know, just you're thinking back on, on your trajectory, some of the things you were doing in the early days that you think probably were really helpful in, in you getting the reps and developing the skill? Mm -hmm. not, not, I was always willing to fail. And I, and I never took it too personally. And neither did I take success too personally. And I made a whole lot of mistakes. I mean, I just, gosh. <laughs> what, what does it look like when you do? I even look, you know, I, let me tell you something. So I was doing an album recently and I needed a, 
I needed a flute sonata for it to complete the album. And so I wrote this flute sonata and I ended up hating it. I thought, Jesus, this thing really sucks. And so what I did was I just wrote a completely different kind of flute sonata. It was almost opposite to the one I had written that I didn't like. And I, you know, of course, the one I liked was a product in a way, but one I didn't like. Mm -hmm. But it was really amazing to me that I had written, I had written something that I really hated. <laughs> <laughs> I really hated it. And, you know, I heard it the other day and I thought, cause I hadn't taken it down from one of my sites yet. And I, I uh, said, God, I get rid of this. this thing should never exist. I got to get rid of this. thing." <laughs> so even now I'm, I'm capable of creating a clinker. <laughs> Be, being able to analyze all the different art forms. I, I, I assume you're probably even going to get frustrated with the question around if you could look at one, um, that just brings, I, I love how you describe the art creates its own universe. I think that's beautiful. I'm wondering for you, is there something that you've done that you feel was the most beautiful universe that you'd like to go to? Many things though. I can't sort of, it's like, which child do you love best? No, I know they're all, they're <laughs> all the question. <laughs> luckily, luckily I've only got two, so it, it, it's easier to make that yeah. decision. But, um, no, yeah, I, I'm just curious what yeah, no, like, it's really it's what's really interesting is sometimes there's certain <clears throat> like especially in my music, there's certain things I would like to hear at certain points, and I absolutely do not want to hear them at other points. Hmm. And it just depends on the mood I'm in or something like that, you know. Uh, because after you create something, you then become audience for it. So as audience, um, it's not about me having written it, it's about do I like this thing, this piece. Um, some of my films that, um, I really like a lot and some of them I like every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure we're, we're going to discuss. But then there's, I mean, I, but that's true of me with other composers, with composers generally. I mean, sometimes no matter what I could listen to Bach, but sometimes I'd rather listen to Beethoven or, or Stravinsky or, you know, someone else, you know, it, it's just with, or, or um, the Beatles, or the Rolling Stones, <clears throat> or Lady Gaga. Just mentioning all these names that have, let's call it, touched greatness. Is there anyone, if you could do this, right, like long-form conversation, sit down with, just ask away, who would you love to do that with? They could be alive. Orson Welles. Orson Welles? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> the, the, the early talent, talent and genius. Why, why him? <laughs> I don't know. He's just so great. He's so well, interesting. It's funny you bring up Eastwood earlier because Eastwood, I almost feel like developed where Orson peaked so early. Yeah, I mean he had his he had his um, foibles. He had his bad patterns, but he he was also a true genius and an interesting guy. What are you going to ask I think him? He would be the most fun, and it wouldn't be to learn anything. It would be to hang out with him. I mean, gee, you know, if you get to hang out with Orson Welles, yeah. wow. <laughs> No, I There's love another it. one too. Is is I think uh, John Cassavetes, who I absolutely love. <laughs> what do you What do you love about John? I love his films. I mean, the, the most original. I mean, it's, have you have you seen John Cassavetes' films? I, I can't say I have. What you're in for a treat. Okay, you really are. You're in for a treat. They're brilliant, and they're so you you can't believe that someone made a film like that. Um, look at opening night or death of a bookie or these are great, uh, 
great, great films. And he was uh, almost one of the major, he was one of the major pioneers in the indie f film movement. Yeah, he's just great genius. Looks like I've got a little bit of homework to do. But uh, Robert, this, fun this, stuff though. Yeah, you gotta, this is homework that you get enjoy. <laughs> oh yeah, this is, believe me, I I'm excited about this. But uh, as as you mentioned, you you have a lot of different projects going on. Uh, of course, we're gonna have everything linked up. I know they can go to robertfritz.com. <laughs> Where else do you want the listeners going, or is there anything else they should check out uh, to stay connected with your work? Just uh, my Facebook page and um, my books. You know, they're all on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have all that linked up, but Robert Fritz, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Pleasure. <laughs> you guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.